0: You, you may have noticed as well in your bulletin today there was a variety of little toys available to you and a little advertisement for you to get some more toys. You should have received a very cool little bookmark that said study, a scripture passage from 2 Timothy, and on the back side, a ruler. For all of you who don't own a ruler, you now have a ruler. You can measure things in your life. This is a great little thing. I don't know how you are when you read books, whether you mark them up. Do you mark your books up when you read them? Let me see your hands if you're a bookmarker. Good, you should. You should mark your books up. Uh, This will help you do that. You can draw lines. If you're one of those underlining people that likes to have things really neat, uh, you can draw lines, underline, use this. But make use of this. It will help you remember to study. There is a memory passage that we're going to pass out each week as we study through the Gospel of John. There will be a memory passage for you to take with you Put this thing in your pocket, stick it on the dashboard of your car, have it with you so that just throughout the day you can just recite this and get the Word of God in your heart. So that's available for you as well. And then in the next few weeks we'll walk through more of this. This little handout here says Basic Bible Reference Library. I'll explain a little bit more about why this is so important. But this is some, some Bible tools for you to do Bible study with. And there's recommendations that the staff has put together for you for just some real basic. This is not going to give you a huge library, but it would give you the basics that you'd need to open the Bible up and do a decent Bible study personally on your own. So everybody ought to have this. If you're looking through this list and you don't have all this stuff in your library, then, then you really cannot do an adequate job of studying the Bible. So please look through that. Uh, beginning next week, we'll probably walk through one at a time and kind of let you know how you use each one of those and what they're good for and why we suggest them. Let me give you one other. <clears throat> I'm just going to tease you with this. This is not really an announcement. It's just a uh, letting you in on what's happening. Peter is not here this weekend. He uh, He suddenly had a interruption in the course of his life Um, he got news just last week that his father and you may not know the details of Peter's life but uh, he got news last night last week that his father was alive Uh, now he has not known that his entire life Uh, he was led to believe when he was nine years old that his father died in World War II and so he never knew him and this man who lives in Canada he's a Canadian Peter was born in London England Um, this man had actually looked for Peter earlier in life. You know, back in the 40s, you have a hard time finding people. You just can't go online and Google and find folks. So having left London and come to the United States and just got out of touch, but uh, later in his life, he's 88 years old, he decided, I want to try and find my son. And he got in touch with a relative who lived in Dallas, who actually did some research and, and found a Peter Douglas Davidson. And I'm going to let Peter tell you some of the story on it. But it, it, it's been amazing. He, he jumped on the plane, he and Gene and, uh, and Ashley, and flew up to Canada just a few days ago to be reunited with him. And when he arrived, Gene called me yesterday, when they arrived, the news media was everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he got out of the vehicle to walk up and and immediately a microphone was thrust in his face. How does it feel to be reunited with your father? And, you know, Peter, who's never at a loss for words, (laughs) uh, Gene said all he did was burst into tears. I think the amazing grace of God um, for this to even occur. I want to reserve details for Peter to be able to share with you. Uh, but if you want to hear a good bit of the story, this that was picked up by the news, if you'll go to this website, it's www.vspthesp.com. That is the newspaper in Saskatchewan, which is where he is in Canada. Thespvsp.com. If you'll go there, and I I don't know how they do with archiving things. This was yesterday's front page story. So if you go there, you will find this on the front page yesterday with pictures of uh, Peter and Gene and Ashley with the family, Uh, another picture of Peter and his dad, and just the whole story of how this kind of came about. So it's just been amazing for this to have occurred. Uh, I would like for us to do one thing this morning I I was talking to Gene yesterday, and I thought, you know, how incredible that this even has occurred. Uh, Wouldn't it just be like the Lord to have prompted this man's heart to search for his son so that this man could come to know Christ? He's 88 years old. Um, He's had a stroke. He's he's not in the best of health, uh, but pretty good health. But could this be the Lord's grace that he would come to know the Lord? And they're not sure about where he is spiritually. But I'd like for us to pray for him this morning. Peter and Gene are there today and tomorrow. I believe they may come back Tuesday or Wednesday. But there are opportunities that they're seeking to share uh, the gospel with him. So let's pray together for that. Lord, it is amazing to see your doing in the lives of those that you bring to yourself uh, Lord, thank you for blessing our dear friend uh, with the opportunity to know his dad uh, before his entire life had passed without knowing him. Lord, we, we thank you that you're a God who does abundantly beyond all that we could ask or even imagine. So, Lord, we can, we can imagine that you would have raised up this meeting so that this man, at the very ends of his life, would come to know you, the messenger of his own son, would come back to tell him about the gospel. Lord, That, that's an amazing story, Lord. God, we pray that over these next few days, Lord, that Peter and Gene are there uh, with him. Lord, that you would sovereignly arrange and open opportunity and open the heart of this man to want to know the most important thing about his son. And that's Peter's relationship with you, Lord. So, Lord, would you meet with them as they meet? Would you open that opportunity and would you open this man's heart to the gospel that he might respond with a heart full of faith and the real joy of his whole life, Lord, might be set before him. The joy, more than meeting his son, but of meeting his God. Lord, do this for the sake of your great name, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. well this morning, I don't have anything that will top that, but we'll... We'll give this a shot. Um, We are going to begin this morning a study in the Gospel of John. And uh, I anticipate that we will probably be in the Gospel of John, studying through it in sections and in verses, probably for about two years. And that was the effect it had yesterday as well. Uh, I don't know whether you're laughing because that seems like a long time or you're thinking, hey, no way he can do this in two years. It should be the second one. I don't think you guys remember how long it took to get through Romans. It's pretty sure First John was close to two years when we did that. But we're going to give this a shot and moving along quickly. Well, actually, in the next two years, John will not be the only thing we would study together. The Lord will direct us in other categories, as he always does, that we'll be doing thematic studies and uh, topical studies and just words from God that are uniquely needed for us to hear at particular times. But we anticipate probably about two years' worth of study in this Gospel. Now, I've titled today, An Introduction to Studying the Gospel of John. So, let me just share with you, I'm going to take a little bit of liberty in what we actually focus on today. The focus today is actually going to be more on studying the gospel of john than it actually is on introducing the gospel of john i'm going to do a very brief job today of introducing the gospel of john the normal background information that we would have and i don't feel a great need to cover that in detail as we move through the gospel there will be many opportunities where whoever one of us is preaching will have to bring out the issues of what's going on in that setting the time frames the author that god used all that will come out quite a bit as we study but today I have felt a particular burden to put the emphasis on studying the gospel of John. And so that, that's what we're going to get to do together as we're here and opening up just a portion of passages each week and studying those passages and listening and learning from the Spirit of God. But I, I want to bring to our attention the issue of being students of the Word of God being studiers of the Word of God. We live in a time where studying the Bible has, has fallen on some some difficult years. I've been saved long enough to remember and to look back and see changes that have taken place in the body of Christ, in the way in which people approach the Bible. I got saved in the, in, at the end of the 70s, And, you know, it was a few years before I really got involved with the church and got around people who had some maturity in Christ. But the early 80s and the late 70s was coming out of an era of time that some of you may remember, if you remember the body of Christ back then. The discipleship movement had taken place in the 70s. That came on the heels of the hippie movement, Jesus freaks, and people getting saved uh, in the hippie movement out of the early 70s and late 60s. And out of that came this movement of discipleship where people began to realize they wanted to take seriously the study of the Word of God. And they wanted to have reality in their life as well. So they began to pursue greater accountability and greater study of the Word. If you remember back into the 70s, if you've been saved that long, you remember there wasn't such a thing as a study Bible back in the 70s. It was the late 70s and the early 80s that began to give way to study Bibles, to people actually having resources when they went to read the Bible that would help them to understand background and those sorts of things. Well, in our society, something has happened during these 80s and 90s and up to the period in which we are right now. People in our culture have fallen out of love with studying, studying's out. Reading is on its way out. Studies show from the number of people that were readers on a regular basis in the the 70s to today, there's been an increase in population and a decrease in reading from those time periods. Uh, The studies will show that the word, which was the means of communicating, articles and periodicals, the word has given way to the image. And you'll see that the computer age has done that for us. And so now we are much more image driven. We don't like to read a whole lot. Attention spans are becoming shorter and shorter and shorter. So the ability to study, listen, study is wrestling with something. Study is not just, oh I read that, okay, well, I just go on now. And and this this is a hard thing for us. What do you guys do when you're maybe researching something on the internet? And you click on one of those web pages that just takes too long to load. <laughs> I just click on the next one, right? I'm not waiting for that. That takes time. It may take me another 15 seconds for the little green bar to get all the way across the bottom. I don't have 15 seconds for you, pal. I'm moving on. Well, that mentality is in us. That when we bump into anything that doesn't yield its, its fruit to us, just like that, we're ready to move on. So when we come to the Bible, when we read a passage that's difficult and it's challenging and we don't get it the first time around, do we just click to the next one? Oh, I don't get that. Uh, You know, I picked up and I tried to start reading Leviticus and, you know, I I just didn't get it. So, you know, I went back to Ephesians um, and we just kind of live in the verses and in the books that seem to be a little more easy for us to figure out. And we avoid the whole counsel of God. Well, let's listen to this quote. This is a telling quote from the New York Times. Help us to see the challenges that we're facing to be studiers of the Bible. It's an article by Edward Wyatt. The title of it is The Bible, Chapter and Every Other Verse. He says, how many ages and generations have brooded and wept and agonized over this book? Walt Whitman wrote, enraptured by the, quote, divine and primal poetic structure of the Bible. Weep he might have had he come across the 100-minute Bible which boils down the primal poetic structure to 50 prosaic pages intended to be read in two minutes apiece. And what to make of the SMS Bible? A text messaging version by the Bible Society in Australia, which translates Genesis 1-1 Now you have to read this with me. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This will be an interesting Bible to study, won't it? <laughs> the new 100-minute Bible and digital Bibles join a long list of condensed versions, each drawing doubters who question the wisdom, if not the audacity, of editing God. Why does man persist, and can any good come of it? One man commented this way, he says, But, but if the man in the street is not reading the Bible, Mr. Budd continued, you have to ask, isn't it better to read a short version than not to read the long version? And there's an accommodating thing happening here. Okay, I, want, I want us to make sure we see that. Churches are accommodating this everywhere. Messages are getting shorter and shorter and shorter. and That's not happening here, but messages are getting shorter and shorter and shorter because people's attention spans are getting shorter and shorter and shorter. And now people come to church to get a spoonful of truth, to live a very large life with lots of stuff in it. That's not going to help folks. Perhaps not, said Michael Cromarty, vice president at the Ethics and Public Policy Center in Washington, where he directs programs on evangelicals and civic life and religion and media. He says, in this high-speed internet age where everybody is in a hurry, the one thing you don't want to be in a hurry with is reading the Bible, Mr. Cromarty said. You don't speed-read the Word of God. You should never try, not because condensed versions miss the larger point. The Bible is a book to be read and meditated on not to be read quickly on the metro now realize these these are these issues that I bring them to our attention because these are the kind of things that creep into our bloodstream by breathing the the smoke of the culture that we live in the culture we live in is fast moving there's too much information in it we can connect with too many things too easily so the ease of everything, we live in a comfort-driven society, we want everything to be instant, easy, we don't, we don't want to wait, we don't want to struggle and wrestle. So when things require that, we tend to move away from them. Studying the Bible requires mental engagement and energy and effort and time and tools and developing of skill and... It may be that we are living in the era of Christianity where many folks will never study the Bible. At best, at best, they may read it devotionally. And that's not how the Bible was intended for us to read it. And today, what I'd like for us to do is to to, to learn about studying the Gospel of John, making the study of the Gospel of John a pursuit that's very important to us. Uh, there's a little list of basic disciples library That, again, everyone should have these things. A Bible, probably more than one translation of the Bible. We'll explain that further as we move along. Concordance, topical Bible, a Bible handbook, a Bible dictionary, a commentary, even if it's a brief one-volume commentary would be helpful for some uh, study helps. Doctrine and theology helps would be helpful to have a systematic ability to look at how Scripture presents the consistency of theology throughout the entire Gospel and throughout the entire Word of God. One little publication I would greatly recommend that you get a hold of, especially if you're if you're new to studying the Bible, not just reading the Bible, but studying the Bible. This will probably ramp you up to speed faster than anything else I could recommend. It's a little pamphlet. I believe we have some here today called "How to Study the Bible" by Rose Publishing, and it is just a fold-out laminated. Uh, little brochure, if you will, that will take you through the types of questions you should be asking when you come to a text, how to think things through, how to, how to make sure that you're not misinterpreting the Bible in the way in which you're going about reading it, what kinds of study tools you might need to have that, in addition to that green list that's in your bulletin today. There'd be some other suggestions that are there as well, but it's a very well put together boiled-down approach to how to study the Bible. So I'd encourage everybody to get a copy of that. Even if you've been studying the Bible for a while, there's probably some things that we get out of the habit of doing. But let's look for a moment at this Bible, if you will. Let's consider, what, what, what is this Bible that we are studying? What is the Gospel of John that we are studying within the Bible? I'll put this headline in your outline. It says, the Bible is a mysterious and infectious gathering of literature, a mysterious and infectious gathering of literature. Now, let me take each one of those words apart. I intentionally chose those words. Let me start with literature because it may be one of the most obvious things that gets overlooked in the Bible. Uh, The Bible is not wise sayings from some guy who sat on a rock and every time he had a wise saying, he sat down and wrote it down. And so that when you open it up, it's kind of like, Uh, three or four lines that just kind of stick by themselves, and then there's three or four lines under that, and you just read these little cute phrases and learn something from the Bible. Uh, Well, that's not what the Bible is. The Bible is a gathering of literature. It's actually written the way in which literature is written, the kind of literature that we grew up having to study and learn about, the, the different styles and components of it. Dale Davis says, God has given his word in the form of literature. I should therefore use all available tools for understanding such literature. And there's this huge concept here. Can you imagine the God of the universe, the eternal being, with all the history of what he's ever done with humanity and all the eternal ramifications for what the Bible contains, has chosen to place the concepts of who he is and what he wants us to know into the function of words. That's how God's communicated to us. So these words now need to be understood. Words only have meaning to them when they get into the form of language and they take on sentence structures. Or this, you, can't, you don't open the Bible up and find it to be like a dictionary. Right? I mean, when you open a dictionary, there's words all over the place. But they're not put together in any particular way to where it communicates anything. You read, a, you read an entire dictionary, you have not read a story that's communicated anything to you. You've just got a collection of words, and all those words, yes, mean something, but they're in random order. They begin to mean something when you put them into sentences, and that sentence says something. That sentence is in a paragraph, and that paragraph is in a book. That's when it begins to take on form and meaning. Let me encourage, especially those of you that are still in school, they are still having to study. Many of us couldn't stand grammar, you know, taking grammar in school, you know, all these nouns and pronouns and modifiers and participles and what all this stuff means, and uh, diagramming sentences and how that drove us crazy and we just wanted to get through with this stuff can i encourage you if if you don't if you don't do anything else well make sure you learn how to handle language because you know if if you're if you fumble algebra and you don't do math real well um you know it may inhibit the kind of job you have but you can still understand the word of god even if you can't add and subtract But if you can't handle the language, you're going to have a hard time with this book because it's literature. It's written a particular way. God inspired people to write it in a way that we could read it. Please do a good job of learning to read and write well. Don't blow that off. Later in your life, you will wish you had greater skills when you come to this Bible in order to read all that it has to say to you. So, This is a collection of literature. I'll put in your outline a quick little list of the types of literature found in the Bible. There's narrative literature here. What we're going to read in the Gospel of John is a biographical story. Well, that's a narrative story. There's historical stories that are narrative in the Bible. There's poetry. There are songs in the Bible. There's, There's poetic prayers that are in the Bible. There are letters in the Bible when we come to the New Testament. You actually find letters, correspondence, problems are being solved, instructions are being given, explanation, excuse me, is being done by the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter and the other writers in the New Testament that are writing letters back and forth to the churches. So everything in the Bible doesn't fit exactly into the same form of literature. That's something to know when you come to the Bible. You know, we, we think of this Bible as, as a book. It's the book. Well, in in reality, it is not a book. It is 66 books that are gathered into and bound together in one place. Uh, You would probably be better to think of this as a bookshelf than you would to think of it as a book. And on that shelf are all these individual volumes that are placed, 66 of them, written by over 40 different authors, in different time places, with different backgrounds, with different languages in some cases. Primarily the Bible is written into the Hebrew language and into the Greek language, with a little bit of Chaldean in there as well. Uh, But all this material has now been gathered together into one place. Now what's interesting, and if you're not real familiar with the Bible, the, the Bible can have a mystery that I don't intend for it to have. When I say it's mysterious, I'll tell you what I mean by that in a moment. But you can let the Bible have this mystery about it that... it it obscures what this book is really about. You can let it begin to be this idea that somewhere along the way, people took the best of stories that are out there and just started collecting them together. You know, good moral stories just for people to be affected by in a way in which they live their lives. Sort of a Aesop's Fable or or Gulliver's Travels kind of thing. Just all these stories that floated around humanity's experience and put them together in the Bible so we could all learn some good, valuable lessons from them. Well, that's not what the Bible is. The Bible has many authors who are being directed by one author to accomplish one unified purpose. When you come to this book and you read all the stories that are here, all the characters that are here, you are finding really God doing a very unified thing. He is revealing himself on the pages of this Bible, and he is revealing how man is to be restored to himself. That's what every page of this Bible is about. So no matter what story you read in the Bible, that's where that story is trying to take you. Every time you read it. So it's not just when we read a story out of the Gospel of John that we're encountering the Gospel, the good news. You are encountering the good news in Genesis chapter 1. You're encountering it every time you read a story. And what we don't want to do is develop this, this habit of making this into a non-unified work of literature to where we have these stories like, like Noah's Ark. You know, What's Noah's Ark about? Oh, Noah's Ark... That's a cute story. You know, it almost has a Humpty Dumpty kind of an element to it, doesn't it, today? You know, Humpty Dumpty fell off of a wall. Noah got in a big boat. You know, it's like, oh, that'd be a cute theme for the nursery, wouldn't it? You know, husbands and wives are kind of, and you got these big, goofy arcs with animals all kind of looking off the top of the ark, and they're all having a great time on the boat. Uh, what on earth have we done to this story? Can you remember with me what Noah's ark is about? It's about God killing everyone on the planet. (laughs) Except for a few and a bunch of animals. You know, much more than learning some cute little theme here. If you wanted that theme for your nursery, install a sprinkler system, (laughs) close all the doors, and turn it on in your nursery. That that would be more themy, you know, for the nursery setting. When you come to the story of Noah's Ark... You encounter something about God. Now, isn't this amazing? You can have people today in the modern era that we live who have created this image of God that they don't like a God who's, who's kind of got a spine to him, a God who stands for something, a God who's against that form of sin, a God who might oppose people and do something that doesn't make everybody just feel comfy, cozy, and nice. The world doesn't know what to do with that God. Why? They all know the story of Noah's Ark, but for them, Noah's Ark is a nursery rhyme. That, that story is not in this book as a nursery rhyme. That story is in this book to reveal the character of God. It shows you God does not tolerate wickedness. The righteous God of the universe, he comes to a place where in his mercy, he says, enough of sin and its reign and its tyranny in people's lives. And he brings judgment. Oh, this God will bring judgment. Be assured of that. How can I know that? Because I see it over and over and over again. Remember the nursery story about, uh, oh, being rescued out of Egypt. You know, they make stories about it now. And there's, there's movies and cartoons and Moses taking them out of Egypt. And they cross the Red Sea. You know, all the, the ten plagues. and all. Do you know what those ten plagues were? It was the judgment of God. On the false gods of Egypt. Every one of those judgments was against a particular god of Egypt. Where God came in and said, your gods are not God. That one's not God, and that one's not God, and that one's not God, and that one's not God. And one's not god. And if you chase my people through the, through the Red Sea that I open up, I'm going to judge you as well. And he destroys all the ones who come after him. There's a revelation of God going on in these places, isn't there? But there's also a revelation of the gospel in them as well. When God takes a family, Noah's family... And he says, build an ark, and you're going to pass through that judgment because of my mercy. I'm going to judge the earth, but you are going to be preserved through that judgment. That's the gospel. We're being introduced to the gospel that God intends to save some from the judgment that sin deserves. And to preserve a testimony about his son who will one day come and bear away us who have put our trust in him and spare us from judgment. So all throughout the Bible, you know, you are reading stories that are about God and are about his gospel. Right? Don't, don't, don't read the story about Jonah and the big fish and say, Oh, you know, the moral of the story is you can't run from your problems. Okay. That's great. Uh, so what other little nursery stories have you read from the Bible lately? That's not the moral of the story. God is at the centerpiece of that story. God and his purpose is everywhere on these pages, every story you're reading. So when we come to the Gospel of John, it's very important that we understand, what are we coming to here? What, how is this Gospel revealing God to us and revealing his purpose to save man and bring him back to himself, which has been in place since Genesis, and will continue to the last page of this book, to the last, last breath of humanity. Well, last, I would call this book, it's a gathering of literature, but it is mysterious and infectious, and I choose those words carefully and intentionally. Webster defines the word to infect as to affect or imbue with one's feelings, beliefs, etc. When you get infected, usually we, we use that term as a bad thing, but you get infected by a virus, you have something that has invaded the system of who you are, And it is now seeking to spread its characteristics into your body. That's what that viral infection is seeking to do. Jamel, did I come close on that? Is that pretty good? Thank you for the doctor to verify that. Um, The Bible is similar to that. The Bible has an infectious quality. It is mysterious. Unlike the newspaper that you may have read this morning, unlike a book that you may have read this morning, This gathering of words has another quality to it. It has a a living organism quality to it that makes it mysterious that when you open it up and you begin to read and study it, it has infectious abilities. It has the ability to infect you, to affect and imbue and bring its values and qualities and revelation into who you are. So I want to to show that to us for a moment, because I think when we see this, it should inspire me to say, I want to study that book. If this book does what these words says it does, I want to know that book. Look in these passages, and we'll just walk through a few thoughts that describe the Word of God. John chapter 8, verse 31 says, So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, right? if you dwell and remain in it, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. See, the context for this statement for Jesus was, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. So for every person who has wrestled through, who knows what it is, To have the issue of enslavement to sin be a reality. You know that issue in your life? Remember we talked about that in the series we did a while ago? Those jail cell issues? I'm not talking about the ones you could give or take. You know, like, there's probably not a whole lot of people here who are enslaved to eggplant. Not a whole lot. Broccoli or cauliflower. Those things don't tend to be enslaving issues. But you know there are other ones that you just can't seem to put that down, can you? Well, what is the Bible saying about that? Well, the Bible says if you abide in my word, if you abide in, if you dwell in my truth, the truth will set you free. don't, Don't separate that first part from the second part. Don't make that mistake. The truth will set you free. you got people running all over the place quoting that. you got people who've never read the Bible quote that verse. Hey, brother, the truth will set you free, baby. The truth about what? Math? Science? What's this talking about? What's talking about not just being familiar with the truth, but abiding in the truth. Studying, meditating on, ingesting this virus of truth. If you do that, the truth will set you free. Free from whatever it is that is an enslaving issue associated with sin. Look at this verse in Hebrews 4, verse 12. For the word of God is living And active—that's that's that's viral language, right? You know, when you you get a virus injected in you, that thing's living. It's a living organism. It's it's got its agenda, and it's inside of you now. Well, the Word of God is living and active. It's also sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit. This this Word can travel into the deepest part of who you, you and I are. It can pierce through the hardest areas of our life. You could be here today and you could be hardened through years and years of resisting doing the right thing in a certain category of your life. And it's the word of God that is able, like an unbelievably sharp blade, to pierce through that area of your life and bring itself to bear on who you are right now. It goes on and it says, It's piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It's like it's this x-ray device. It gets inside of you and it reveals things in you that you had no idea were there. It's a, it's a holy MRI that you pass underneath its gaze and it gazes inside of you. And you begin to read, oh my goodness, that's, that's what's in me. And where it's revealing, it's not revealing bone structure It's revealing motives, intentions. It's revealing fears. It's revealing your dreams and your ambitions. It's revealing your idols. See, you just make a little list of those kinds of things. That's the kind of stuff that's driving us up a wall, isn't it? The things I'm afraid of, the ambitions I have. I can't seem to get that, and I am so angry about that. And people get in the way of it, and I take them out. I got a trail of mess in my life now. That's the stuff that's affecting our lives the most, and it's the Word of God that can penetrate into those things and expose the very motives of why I'm doing that, why I think that way, why I live my life for those values. See, this is a mysterious book. So you hold in your hand something that you should be, and if you're a, 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 a person desiring sin, you hold something dangerous in your hand. You hold something that when you when you open it up and you read it, it begins to read you. That's the nature of this book that's in your hand. You may remember the Lord of the Rings movies. Remember the ring in the Lord of the Rings? It's just a little round piece of gold with some goofy writing on it that you could see when you stuck it in the fire. But, People who understood the ring, especially the ones who were trying to be good, they respected it. Remember Gandalf at one point who tried to be the good guy throughout the movie? he, He didn't want to be given the ring because he was afraid of it. See, in a sense, we should have a sense of being afraid of this book. It's not a normal book. It's a very dangerous book. And when you open it, it's almost like that ring. It begins to reach inside of you and do something to you. It's infectious by its very nature and mysterious in how it goes about accomplishing it. Look in the rest of these passages. I'll try and move through these kind of quickly. Psalm 119, verse 130. The unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. Somehow, it just imparts it. It doesn't stand on the sidelines and cheer for you while you figure it out. It imparts that to you by its very nature. But it's the unfolding of it. What's interesting is it's almost as though the Bible comes to us in a package that's been folded together and gift-wrapped. And you, can, you can shake it and feel its weight but until you unpackage that thing and take it apart and set it out on the table, you don't know what's inside this thing. I think unfolding is a good word picture for study. It is the study of the word that brings forth its light. Isaiah 55, listen to what God says. God's up to something with his word. Verse 10 He says, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth making it bring forth and sprout, right? The rain and the snow brings about an effect. That that stuff's here on a mission. Giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word be that goes out of from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. This word is on a mission. This is a heat-seeking missile. God has programmed this word to be living, viral, and when it gets inside of you, it's seeking to accomplish something, and he promises it's going to do its work. This is a dangerous book. Jeremiah 23, verse 29. God says, "'Is not my word like fire,' declares the Lord, "'and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces?' Listen, if you, let me go back to the hardness issue. It's very easy to become hardened in areas of our lives. You know what's amazing? I've observed people and probably see this in my own life as well. Is how you can be so nice in one category and so hard in another. Have you ever noticed that? You know, that? At some point, if you know somebody well, you'll know there's a category for them that don't go there. <laughs> don't bring that up. Don't go there with them. It's like, oh, they're, they're smiles and great As long as you're over here, but you get into this category, you bring up that person or that event or that thing, and all of a sudden it's like, ooh, ooh, what did I just step in? Well, you can be hardened by things. Well, what's the solution to that hardness? The Word of God. The Word of God is like a hammer that shatters a rock. You got hardness in your life? You need a good dose of the Word of God. It's programmed to go on a mission and smash issues of hardness that grow into our lives. Romans chapter 1 verse 16. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God. For salvation to everyone who believes. The gospel itself has power dwelling in it to accomplish salvation. We'll see that in just a few minutes. This You read this gospel. It is powerful to accomplish salvation in our lives, just by it coming to us in its mystery and with its power. Second Corinthians 10, verse 4. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion. That's an interesting thing to show us. What are the real issues here that need to get destroyed? Words, ideas, concepts, concepts that, that get expressed in our minds and our thoughts by words. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. So this is where the battle is. You want to know why your life has the qualities of good and bad that are in it? Things that you like and things that you dislike in them? Because there's a battle going on for the thoughts that will dominate who you're going to be. You boil life down to it, that's exactly what everyday life is. It's a battle for the thoughts that are going to dominate who you are. And it's either going to be divinely inspired thoughts or it's going to be worldly cultural, demonic, self-induced thoughts. And there's a war for that taking place. But this thing is programmed to go to war with those concepts in us. First Thessalonians 2, verse 13. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you receive the word of God which you, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, right? This is not just words from men. And you didn't receive it that way, and you're to be commended for that. You accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you, believers. This mysterious word is at work in you in an infectious way. So what we come away from those verses realizing is, is there something mysterious and infectious about this word that we are needing to study it and to make the study of it a primary issue for us. Look at this thought from Eugene Peterson. He says, there is an enormous interest these days in the soul. Right, The soul is that part you don't see. that makes up who you are. It's your thought life. It's your emotions. It's how you feel about things. There's a lot of interest in that these days. In the church, this interest in the soul is evidenced in a revival of attention in matters of spiritual theology, spiritual leadership, spiritual direction, and spiritual formation. But there is not a corresponding revival of interest in our holy scriptures. we've, We've gotten very interested as a culture as well in what ails us on the inside lots of programs that are on TV, pop psychology-type programs, that are just trying to bring out the ails of the human soul. We're very interested in that. We love self-help books. We love ideas that are out there that might help us. But in our culture and in the church, there is a diminishing of attention being given to study. Now listen, if, if there is truth in what we've heard from all these scriptures, whatever it is that ails the human soul, It is the word of God that cures it. Here is the cure for us. Peterson goes on and says, It is a matter of urgency that interest in our souls be matched by an interest in our scriptures. And for the same reason, they, scripture and souls, are the primary fields of operation of the Holy Spirit. An interest in souls divorced from an interest in scripture leaves us without a text that shapes these souls. In the same way, an interest in Scripture divorced from an interest in souls leaves us without any material for the text to work on. We need both. We desperately need both. Now, why is the study of this book a skill worth pursuing? The study of the Gospel of John in particular, but a study of the Bible. Why is this a skill worth pursuing? And listen, I want to make a differentiation here between reading the Bible and studying the Bible. Because... The reason that I think study is so important, study reflects more of the abiding type words in Scripture, the study to show yourself approved concepts that are in Scripture, the meditating dynamics. All over the world we're told to meditate on the Word. That's beyond reading. Reading is on your way to studying. But reading and studying are not the same thing. Why is studying so critical? Because as you're going to see here in just a second, the real power of the Scriptures on our lives is is not... It's not unleashed because I own a Bible and carry it around with me, keep it in my car, carry it in and out of meetings, put it next to my bed on a bedstand. That does not unleash the power of God that is in this mysterious, infectious word. Reading the Bible in and of itself doesn't unleash the power of God either. Look at these passages here. Actually, turn with me to Acts chapter 8. I don't think that's in your outline. What is it that unleashes this mysterious power that is in this book? It is actually understanding the Word of God. It's not enough that we are aware of it or read it. We need to understand it. If, if this book represents a, a viral cure for sin, then understanding is the needle through which it gets injected into our bloodstream. And if there's no needle to inject it, well then just this just sits on the vial, in a vial on a shelf. And you can read all the description about a drug, right? When you go you read the instructions, you read the side effects, you get it from CVS and you read the little thing that comes with it. Okay? Does reading all that cure you? No. You're going to have to inject that thing into your s- system in order for it to cure you. Well, that's what understanding does. I think Matt mentioned this story a couple of weeks ago when he was encouraging us in our pursuit of the word. In Acts chapter 8, we have the story of Philip being sent to an Ethiopian who is traveling in a caravan on his way back. He's leaving, going away from Jerusalem, and he's reading the scriptures. He is reading the scriptures. Now listen to what Philip does with this man and the importance and where he puts it. Verse 30, I'm going to cut to the chase here. It says, so Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked. Now notice, he does not ask him, do you read the Bible? Sometimes that's what we ask each other. Did you read the Bible today? Did you have your time of reading the Bible this morning? That's not wrong, but it is on its way to something else. He asked, not if you were reading, he, he asked, do you understand what you are reading And he said, How can I? Unless someone guides me. And hold on to that. To understand the Bible involves guidance. We'll come back to that in a second. And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this, okay? He's reading a nursery rhyme, right? This happens to be that Isaiah is the writer. No, no, Isaiah doesn't write cute nursery rhymes like some of the other guys do. But here's what he's reading from Isaiah, this little collected story here. What's this thing about, right? A little, some guy wrote something, a cute little moral story, right? Like a sheep, he was led to slaughter. And like a lamb before its shears is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom I ask, does the prophet say this about himself about someone else then philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture he told him the good news about jesus what is the book of isaiah about it's about jesus Wait, wait wait if you know anything about the book of isaiah it's written 750 years before jesus ever comes It's got all this stuff about nations, and there's this nation getting judged, and that one getting judged, and then there's some great day of restoration, whatever that means. And God's going to do something with his people. Well, wait, his people are the nation of Israel. What is this book about? It's a book about Jesus Christ. Everywhere, every page is pointed to that one factor. And Isaiah is just another author inspired by God to contribute to that one story. But look what happens to this eunuch. And use a little imagination here. He is riding down a road. He is reading Isaiah. When he encounters Philip, he then understands Isaiah. What's the difference between reading and understanding for this Ethiopian eunuch? Just a small thing. Salvation. He's just reading. But the moment he understands he comes to believe. Philip says, what keeps this man from being baptized? He instantly he gets saved. Right on the spot, right there. What did that? Understanding the word. Not just reading it. He got This guy apparently owned a copy of the scriptures. But it wasn't until the day he understood it. Well, not involved reading it in order to understand it. So this is not a knock on reading. Reading is on our way to understanding, though. Listen to what else the Bible says about understanding. Matthew thirteen nineteen: When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. How often does that happen? How often do we sit in a meeting like this and listen to the word of God preached, read the scriptures, look at them, and walk away going, I just don't, I don't get that. I just don't get it. What do you do when you don't get it? Do you decide I'm going to strap in and I'm going to study this? Or do you just leave it alone and walk away? Come back next week. They'll be talking about something else. Maybe I'll get that. Well, the Bible says that if you don't understand it, you won't own it. And if you don't own it, the enemy will come snatch it away. And now it won't be in your life in the way in which it was supposed to be in your life. You see, what needed to happen was you need to attend this meeting. One of the reasons we supply notes with tons of scriptures is for you to be able to take that with you and go study. You take that home. You sit with God. You break out your tools. Maybe the the message moved too quickly on the point that you really needed to get get a hold of. Study that thing. No matter where you are in your faith, if you just begin to walk with Christ, you've been walking for years, do not develop the point-and-click habit of reading and studying the Bible. We get to one of those phrases. Well, I don't really get that. That's a a hard passage. Click. It it, it would take me too long to download that thing. I'm just going to go to the next thing. Click, click, click. Let me put together all the easy passages that I know and just stick with those. I remember when I was first saved, the first few years of being saved, the Lord had just stirred into me a a desire to know and understand some things in the Bible. And I come across these phrases that this seems to contradict That. I don't understand how this goes together with that, and boy, that's a hard phrase to understand. So I started looking for books like the hard sayings of Jesus. I, want, I wanted to see people tackle the issues that were difficult in the Bible. We need to have that mentality. If you don't get something, realize the benefit for it is in understanding it. Matthew fifteen ten, and he called the people to him and said to them, "Hear." And understand. Don't just hear, but hear and understand. Now, quick little self-survey for you there's in that little box in your notes. This might be indicative of how much we are studying and understanding the Word of God. And it would be reflected by the issues that should be affected in us by an accurate understanding of the Word. Does your life lack freedom? When you look in your life, are there categories where you just know that you are not walking in freedom in this area? It could be repetitive sin could be habits that that you keep saying you want to do something about you don't seem to be able to do something about them. it could be things places that you won't go and you won't do because you 're ensnared to try that or to step into that realm and, and you just stay where you are well if that 's the truth, then that would reflect I believe a lack of study and understanding of the word because the bible says if you abide in my word you will know the truth and the truth will set you free so we we shouldn't fool ourselves by thinking you know yeah you know i've been a christian for a long time and i'm just all bound up in some areas i just don't know the power of god i mean come on i'm so disillusioned do you study do i adequately wrestle with the word of god that it might enter my veins And begin to do what God sent it to do in my life. To set me free. We don't have to be bound up. Isn't that great news? There's not a person here this morning that needs to stay in the place of being bound up by some kind of sin. Some kind of inhibiting characteristic in life that afraid to go off and do this. Or get into this relationship or try that thing. I'm just afraid. I'm afraid of that setting. Well, why is it? Why am I afraid of those things? That's a good question. Is there ongoing spiritual blindness in your life? Why do I do the things that I do? Why do I avoid the things that I avoid? What's motivating in me? What's controlling me? Why am I afraid of people? Are you you here this morning and you, you got fear of people in your life? You're afraid of their opinions, afraid to get in certain settings, afraid to get around people, you're afraid to speak up publicly. You're just afraid of those things. If I were to stop and ask you, why? Why are you afraid of that? You know the number one answer I'd get? I don't know. <laughs> Wouldn't that be true? I don't know. Well, that might indicate a sense of spiritual blindness about my life. that I don't know why it is that I'm controlled and limited by things like that. Why, why are you perhaps a, one of the, a person that's so easily angered? Some people just—they're just a moment away from an outburst. Even if your outburst is pouting, okay? Pouting is a form of anger. It's you protesting. You don't like life, and you're gonna let everybody know it. And you're gonna put on a big old pout. And so if some of you get real loud and blow up, and everybody kind of knows, you know. And when you walk in, kind of like there's a—I don't know—this an early detection device and a warning that goes out through the house. Dad is in the house. He's in an explosive mood, and mom comes in and she kind of does that hand signal thing with her eyebrow. And everybody knows, stay away. You know, Mount Vesuvius is about to erupt. Don't go near him today. Why? Why are you that way? Why is anger so easily in control of you? I don't know. That's spiritual blindness. I should know. The Word of God has the ability to tell me why that is the case. Maybe you're, maybe you're one of those folks here today, and you're, and you're just sensitive. You're just, you're just sensitive. You know what I'm talking about? just one of those sensitive people you know i can't help it i'm just sensitive you know you get your feelings hurt a lot you kind of withdraw and you go inside yourself and then finally somebody's got to lower a bucket down into the hole that you've crawled into and kind of pull you out when they finally get you to the surface what comes out is, well you know someone said something and you were sensitive and that just just knocked you over like a big wave why why are you so sensitive That you become inhibited and can't be free to be the person God wants you to be. Why? I don't know. Really? Can you know? If I injected some of this stuff in you, you could know. Couldn't you? The Word of God is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword. And it passes between the joints and the marrow and the soul and the spirit. And it judges and reveals the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Why are you so sensitive? Why are you so angry? Why are you, why are you that way? Well, I bet if you inject some of this stuff into your veins, like an MRI, it'll, it'll give you a report. And it'll tell you. You're angry because you've got a big old idol in your life. You love things to go your way. And when they don't go your way, you blow up. You have a big idol of ease and selfishness going on in your life. How mysterious is that? Well, hang around the Word of God, meet some other people just like yourself, read about them, and you'll, you'll be looking at that and you'll go, oh my gosh, <clears throat> me and David got a lot in common, you know. You'll find the, the Word of God is living and active. And when it gets inside of us and we gain understanding from it, what a difference it makes in our life. Why are we studying the Gospel of John? We're studying it so that we can gain understanding of it, so that it can be unleashed in our lives. And here's the aid component here. I remember a moment ago I said Philip guided, he guided the Ethiopian into an understanding of the truth. Well, we need some guidance. Luke 24, verse 44 says, Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand The scriptures, they had already read the scriptures. They had grown up reading the scriptures. They knew about the Old Testament and knew much of what it said. But under the guidance and assistance and help of Jesus Christ himself, they now came to understand the scriptures that they had once only read. Now, do you see something very important here? They didn't do this on their own, did they? They didn't come to understand the Bible on their own. What I'm not talking about today, I'm not standing up here saying, look, let's everybody get some fresh determination. We're going to wind ourselves up and pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, and we're going to study the Bible, dog on it, and we're going to understand this thing. No, it doesn't work that way. The understanding must be given to us. Now, you and I must study, but the understanding must be granted to us. Jesus opened their minds. So understanding requires these two things, the study of truth and the spirit of truth. Now, when Jesus is here with his disciples, the Holy Spirit has not yet been given. So he is playing the role. But he told them, John 16, he told them, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. How does someone come to understand the scriptures? By the guidance and the ministry of the Holy Spirit bringing us into Revelation. So for us to understand the word, we need the study of truth and we need the spirit of truth. And I don't want us to just bulk up on books and tools and think that all I need is a really good commentary and a couple of really good handbooks. And, you know, I'm going to be I'm going to figure this stuff out. No, 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 no. The biggest component that you and I need is the Spirit of God to give us understanding. Dale Davis does a great job of bringing this helpfully into perspective. He says, I was reading Richard Pratt's fine book, He Gave Us Stories. He was discussing what precious little attention we give to the work of the Holy Spirit in the task of interpreting Scripture. We are guilty of arrogance, not merely neglect, when we fail to beg for the Spirit's help in the study of Scripture. I think of those times when in a light-headed tokenism we utter our slap-happy prayer, that the Lord would, quote, guide and direct us as we study this passage. But how many more times we neglect any overt seeking of the Spirit's help. Deep into our study time, the thought occurs to us that we have not looked, nor did we think of looking to the God who breathed out this Scripture to give us understanding of the Scripture. We must begin with the Spirit, and we must not only begin with Him, but we must keep returning to him again and again. <clears throat> now, let me spend just a few minutes here wetting our appetite for the Gospel of John. This Gospel, like the rain and the snow sent forth from God, it is sent with an agenda. It is pre-programmed to bring about a certain effect once it gets injected into the bloodstream of people. What is this Gospel trying to do? Well, let's look just real quickly. I'll just give you a quick overview thought as we begin to go into this study next week. Let me just give you a quick background. Again, we'll, we'll cover this stuff probably in detail each week. What type of writing is this? This is, we're pulling this off the bookshelf, right? What is this that we're reading? Well, it's a gospel. It's not a letter. It's not poetry. It's a narrative. It's a story. It's a biographical sketch of the life and ministry and teachings of Jesus Christ. That's what a gospel is. What's human author is the apostle John is inspired by God himself, but God used human vehicles to bring those inspired thoughts and put them on pages. The time of writing is in the late 1st century. Most folks believe approximately 90 AD when John actually sat down and penned this. The original language is not English. It's Greek. Now, you immediately need to know something about that when you go to understand that I'm reading the the English version of the original language. If, you're, if you know more than one language, you know that, that there's a little bit to be lost in translation. So John was not inspired and led by God to write in English. He wrote it in Greek. We need to respect that when we come to study it. The setting of this gospel is the first century Palestine. The life of Jesus Christ is set in that place. Part of the inspiration of God in, in inspiring these scriptures is the setting in which he put them. You learn stories. They dressed a certain way. They lived a certain way. The pace of life was a certain way. They had certain beliefs. Certain cultural dynamics are going to be interacted with. That's part of what God inspired to tell us something. So it, it's, it's, it's plausible that God could have decided to send his son in the year 2007. You know, and at that point, we'd, we'd have references to people Googling things in the Bible. Well, if you find Googling in this Bible, it's, it's the sound the baby makes. It is not a, a search on the internet. All those things mean something. So there's an element of culture that we, we do well to get some kind of basic tool in our hands. A Bible handbook, I'd suggest, would be the easiest thing for you to get your hands on. That would help you understand what's some of this stuff that's happening here, and help me to, to look at that and incorporate that in. But let me look just today real quick. What's the purpose for this gospel? Why why don't we have the Gospel of John? I mean, for goodness sake, we had three other Gospels before this one anyway. John's the last of the Gospels that are written. So why do we need one more Gospel from you? We, we have the synoptic Gospels, the three that are very much related. John's the most different from all the Gospels. Well, let's look at the inspired word. John chapter 20. Here's your memory verse for the week. John chapter 20. <clears throat> and this provides the umbrella under which we read the Gospel of John because it's going to come right out and tell us the purpose for it being written. John chapter 20, verse 30. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. As we study through John, you're going to find out there is this major theme of signs that pop up. There are seven signs along the way, the study of of the Gospel of John. Now, this this picking up that, that theme. And Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Now, there's the, there's the purpose statement for why, why are these stories, these teachings, these elements of Jesus' life collected together? Now, we learn something about the nature of a gospel here. It's very helpful. John, as the writer of this gospel, he's not some historian who's just trying to present the chronological facts of Jesus' life. It'd be more accurate to call the writers of the gospels preachers than it would be to call them historians. They were inspired by God to tell something about Jesus. So when they surveyed his life, they picked this, but not that, this and this, but not that and that and that, although Mark and, and Luke have that, this one, and this one, and this one, and this piece here, but let's skip all this and let's talk about this. Well, that's kind of what, what God leads preachers to do. You're trying to say particular things. There's an agenda here. The Gospel of John has an agenda. This verse is telling us what the agenda is. It's certain things collected together in order that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ. Every element that we're going to come in contact with is pre-programmed to help lead us to that place. Now, this is very helpful. It helps people to come to understand the nature of the Bible. You have some people who attack the Bible because it's like, well, you know, the Bible doesn't say anything about auto mechanics in here. See, the Bible doesn't talk about everything, okay? Well, exactly right. The Bible is not intended to talk about everything. What's amazingly interesting is in all the historical recording that's in this book, it says next to nothing about most of the entire world. It talks about Abraham and his descendants, the entire Old Testament is about one guy's family and how they descended from him. And the only time anybody else gets mentioned is if they dared cross Israel and get involved with them somehow. You know nothing about what's happening in Africa, Asia, Europe. You know nothing about those things. See, the Bible is not intended to be about everything. It's intended to tell the story that God is choosing to tell through the means he's choosing to tell it. And that's the Gospel of John as well. So there's a reason behind what we have here. But let me highlight this element as well. These things were written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Why do we have these things? So that you and I can believe them. That's why we have them. Now it tells you something about belief. Belief has a specific object. Belief has something in mind. There's certain content that goes into our believing, certain content that's part of convincing us. When you stand and say, why why are you a Christian? Somebody ask you that question. Why are you a Christian? All the things that there is to believe in this world about religion. Why are you a Christian? Well, if you don't know the answer to that real well, which is an answer you need to have an answer for, the Gospel of John is written for that very purpose. You'll find the answers in the Gospel of John. The reasonings that anyone could use to become convinced that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, are in the Gospel of John. But let me let me bring us back to this point of mystery here. This book, remember, this this book is is different. And there's a little bit of a strange circular thought right here in this passage. Right? Read it again with me. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe. These are written so that you may believe. Well, that's, that's kind of a circular thing. You're asking me to believe something that's written down so that I might believe it. Wait, wait, shouldn't I, shouldn't I have some kind of objective thing that analyzes this thing from outside of itself? If you want me to believe that, shouldn't I be looking outside of it in order to, to verify its veracity as to whether or not I will believe it? Well... Uh, You can do that, but that's not what John says. John says, these things are written down so that you may believe. Now, I think that brings us back to this viral, infectious element of the word of God. When you get exposed to the word of God, it is the word of God itself that accomplishes belief in us. It's not just us deciding, okay, I've weighed the Bible in the scales of my knowledge and I have determined it is true. No, no, no. There's something mysterious about the Bible itself that will convince you that it is true. Right? That, that's that circular thought. What we believe provides the enablement to believe. What you read here is living and active. It's coming off the page into your heart to convince your heart to believe. It's not just what you're going to believe. It's also interacting with you so that you will believe it. That's the mystery about the word of God. Let me, let me encourage us in this. You may not realize and you may not handle the word this way. But when you open this word to people, you just, you just read it and explain it like Philip did. Do you understand what a dangerous thing you're introducing to someone's life? That Ethiopian's life was forever changed because the word of God was opened. I don't know. Maybe it needed some of that mysterious Lord of the Rings music in the background. Mm -hmm. and and philip just begins to explain with a smile on his face what it means and it begins to seep into this man's heart and next thing you know he's believing it where did that come from it came from this word itself i tell you people don't get saved apart from the word of god the gospel is the power of god the salvation it's the gospel itself inherent in this word is power so when we share it with others it has power. It has power that other things don't have the same way. Listen, I've had to wrestle through this, and especially in terms of alpha presentations. and Maybe you do this in sharing the gospel. We tend to try and want to convince people that this is true from getting outside of it and trying to convince them that it's true. We want to take history. We want to take other elements. We want to tell stories. We want to create illustrations. And we want to somehow take something out here to make people believe this is true. But this word is capable of doing it on its own, convincing people that it's true. It can get into the human heart and it can bring about belief in a mysterious way that my argument doesn't necessarily go accomplish. And listen, this is not an argument that you should never use illustrations or tell your testimony. When I look in the Bible, I find Jesus using illustrations all over the place, doesn't he? The Apostle Paul gives us some of the most rich illustrations. The body of Christ and the armor of God. He's using illustrations everywhere. The Apostle Paul is telling his testimony over and over again. We have it recorded two times where he tells it and a third time where it's recorded. So should you tell your testimony? Should you use an illustration? Sure you should. He even used Greek culture to communicate the truth. But those things in and of themselves don't accomplish the same thing that when you unleash the word of God. And you quote it, and you repeat it, and you open it and explain it. It is the unfolding of your words that brings light. It's not a clever illustration that brings that kind of light. And Listen, I, I know, You know, I'm, we can be very tempted to, Ooh, well, oh, I need to, u- I need to use that illustration. That illustration only has life if it's attached to the Word of God. Otherwise, it's just a cute phrase. It will not perform its work. An illustration doesn't perform its work like this does. This is a living and abiding and effective word. Now, look at this byproduct. And I'm going to stop right here. Eric, you can go ahead and come back up. What's the byproduct of this believing? It says, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. By believing, you may have life in his name. So can we back up as we study each one of these sections of the Gospel of John? Here's the agenda of God. God tells this particular story, beginning in John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Okay, well, John, why are you writing that? John, why? What was God's agenda? Well, that's being written down. So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. And that by believing and being convinced of that, you may have life in his name. All the life the Bible depicts is having life. See, if I study this word, this word will bring me understanding. And that understanding injected into my veins, this living, infectious word, it will bring an effect upon my life that will bring about belief. And that belief will lead me into the abundant life of God. So you see how important it is that we study the gospel of John. We don't just want to read it. We want to memorize it. We want to take the verses that we give you each week, meditate on them, chew on them, be able to explain why every word in that memory verse is there and what it means and what it communicates to you and the effect that should have on your life. That's meditating and studying the word of God. Now, let me encourage you in this. A couple of the reasons I have felt that's a study in the gospel of John. Right now, this season for us as a church, would be very important. Uh, One would be to expose these meetings, these Saturday morning and Sunday morning meetings, to expose them to more evangelism, to expose this setting to, as John says, this is the stuff that leads to belief. So as we take this apart, sometimes, listen, aren't we all tempted to do this? If I were to tell you next week, next week, invite all your friends, we're going to study next week how to write your ticket in life. We're going to study next week. How to have it all, baby? You can have it all. That's what we're going to study next week. You can invite your friends. Uh, we might be tempted to say, ah, oh, well, uh, I might have a friend who really might like to come and they could hear the gospel. Or we might be tempted to say, you know, next week, listen, guys, we're going to, we're going to do the, the first week's presentation of Alpha on, on a Sunday morning here. So it could just be very introducing of the gospel to us. Oh, finally a topic. I can invite my friend to that. Okay, well, when we open this word in John chapter 1, and it says in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And we begin to take that passage and explain it like Philip explains Isaiah. That word is pre-programmed by God according to John chapter 20. It's written down so that whoever is here may believe. So what a wonderful evangelistic tool. For you to say, you know what? Because I realize this. Sometimes you're thinking, oh, Ooh, after what Keith said this morning, I'm sure glad I didn't invite my aunt. She'd have, oh, she'd have thrown up probably. Just hearing that, that would have freaked her out. Um, I understand that happens. But, but we're about to unleash the word of God in a study that's intended. Every, every word of it, every section of it was intended to accomplish belief that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And so have faith. Don't have have faith in how well we're going to present this stuff, okay? Have faith that the Word of God is going to be here. It's going to be unfolded, and light is going to come. And somebody that you've invited into this setting, not just into the safe alpha setting where it's safe there, you know. This is dangerous. Well, that's okay. Dangerous in a good way. So I'd like for us to have a little greater sense that, especially while we're still in this movie theater, I think for some folks, I think some people might be more... uh, more likely to come to a movie theater that you invite them to than to a church, maybe. You know, we move back into the building. I think some people come because they'll be curious about the building that we're in. But eventually that building will be labeled a church. And, you know, oh, I haven't set foot in the church. when the a place would fall down. Or how about coming to a movie theater? When was the last time that fell down when you walked in? <clears throat> so invite them to come here. And so for the next many months that, that they can hear the very word that inspires belief. But the other reason why I felt like we needed to study through this is I think what God is doing in us as a church is preparing us to bring a harvest of souls into the kingdom of God. I believe we're building a barn where we will store up those who have been harvested for the glory of God. And for us to do that, we need to be able to handle the gospel of John very well. Because the gospel of John, you know, it's that place when you get saved, somebody says, hey, why don't you start reading the Bible? I don't know, maybe the gospel of John. You probably never knew why you told people that, right? Right. I just heard other people say, oh, let's start with the Gospel of John, so I told them that too. Well, here's why. Because this Gospel is written with the intention that what is here is sufficient. There's a sufficient dose here. And if you inject the Gospel of John into somebody, there's sufficient stuff floating around in their veins now to cause them to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. We need to be able to very adequately handle the gospel of John as a people so that we can effectively minister to this community, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's stand up together. what I'd like for us this morning just to to close our time together by humbling ourselves and turning our attention to